you have your Bibles this morning, I ask that you open them up to John chapter 12 as we continue uh, in the Gospel of John this morning. Last week we returned to the Gospel of John. We hadn't been here for some time. We broke away at the end of chapter 11. We turned our attention back to it last week, this week, and then as well next week when Jared will come and, and share the last portion of this chapter with you. This morning we'll be looking at John chapter 12, verses 12 through 36. We'll read that text in just a moment. Over the several years of being married, or at least since having children, uh, my wife and I have made numerous trips with, as you can tell, multiple kids. We have one or two, in case you don't know, or five. Well, in those journeys that we take, whether rather somewhat short or lengthy, at some point along the way, and dare I say often along the way, one of our kids, not necessarily the same one, but one of them will ask the typical question, are we there yet? Dad, are we there yet? Well, after a while, as you can imagine, and some of you may know, that question gets somewhat old, doesn't it? So Jennifer and I, we devised a way to minimize that question being asked on our trips. You see, our kids know that if that question gets asked too often, it will result in an endless refrain of a song entitled, Are We There Yet? Compliments of the VeggieTales. Now, I won't grace you with a rendition of that song at this moment, but if you would like to know how that song goes, then see my wife at the end of the service, and she will be more than happy to sing it for you. But now, I want to pose that question to, to each of us here this morning. Are we there yet? Now, the answer to that question is, is naturally contingent upon the intended destination. And the answer to that question for us this morning also depends on the perspective from which we might ask the question. Just as it did for the varying groups of, of people that we're going to find represented in our text this morning. Before, before we turn our attention to the text, let me take just a moment to address those of us who are the church. And by that, I really mean those of us who have heard the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, who have embraced it by believing it and repenting of our sins, and, and those, as a result, have been made by Christ very part of the church or the church as God's people. It seems that among the church, there are some who are under the impression that the church is for them. They assume that the purpose of the church is for their comfort and for their personal satisfaction. The services are supposed to entertain them. The song selection, the flow of service, the, the style of delivery by the preacher and all the other elements that may come into play when it comes to a, a worship service, that all these are supposed to meet with their approval or else the result is, at least from their perspective, failure. 
the activities of the church should be relevant and convenient to them. They shouldn't impose stress on their personal schedules nor require too much of them and certainly not cause any feelings of guilt. Now, when this is not the case for these kinds of people, then they often go away dissatisfied, frustrated, and even sometimes angry. And when the church, as the gathered body of believers, makes the satisfaction of these kinds of people their aim or their goal, their destination, then the church begins to serve as kind of a roller coaster ride of ups and downs of excitement and disenchantment for them. That is, that when things are going how they believe they should, then things are grand and good and we're happy. But when they're not going the way we think they should, we're not doing the things that we think we should be doing, then there is disenchantment with the church or frustration, disconnection. Now, hear me. While personal satisfaction, or as we would say, getting something out of it, is not something we want to avoid, we would be hard-pressed to find biblical grounds for making the purpose of the church anything even remotely close to what I have just spoken of. The result of this kind of aim or, or drive by the church is, is the creation of groups of people within the church who are further engulfed by a worldly sense of individualism and self-centeredness. As you've heard it termed, it's, it's, it's all about me. It's supposed to be for me. Now, if this is our destination, if, if that, what I've just spoken of, is in fact our goal, then the answer to our question is, yes, we are there. Because the church has for too long played the game of people-pleasing with the intended outcome of a good thing, that is, of keeping peace. But as is often, almost always, evident to no avail. Now, while we, and I mean we, all of us, continue to struggle with the ideas of individualism and self-centeredness of which we are so ingrained with within our sinful nature most of us would, would cringe at the thought that this what I've just said that that's even the idea that that's the purpose of the church I mean well, duh, that's not it we know that and if asked we would deny well of course that's not the purpose of the church at least with our words but, but in our actions we continue to do the very same things that promote this kind of attitude and mindset amongst the people of the church. Now, in reality, I think, you know, I want to be positive here, in reality, I think most of us recognize that we don't necessarily know what we need. A couple knots. We don't necessarily know what we need. Now, we're often confused about what will cultivate a healthy spiritual life of godliness and joy. Now, understand, and say what we want. We know what we want, right? But we don't always, we, we recognize that we don't always know what it is that's going to, to accomplish in us and cultivate within us a healthy spiritual life of godliness and joy. And I think in theory, for those most people who profess Christ as their Savior, that that's, that's deep down what we want. A life that's a, a healthy spiritual life that, that, that 
that brings forth this sense of joy regardless of the circumstances around us. But yet, still in reality, and day after day, we live for our own benefit and our own personal satisfaction and often continue doing the same things over and over again that only leave us further frustrated, dissatisfied, and stunted in our growth as believers. You've heard it said, the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over and what? Expecting different results. Now the church for which Jesus died, the church that he envisioned, that he designed as a people committed to following Christ, determined to magnify his name at all costs, even if the cost is everything. That's the church that Jesus died for. Now, if that is our destination or the destination upon which we we desire to set our sights upon, the answer to our question is much less certain. We find ourselves like like the small child asking, Mom, are we there yet? And receiving the answer, Well, honey, just one more hour or just two more hours. And the problem with that is that much like that small child asking that question, we have no real concept of time in 15 minutes or two hours is pretty much the same answer. They both mean, no, we're not. And then too often, our lack of patience and our lack of understanding causes us to resort, resort back to the same things that we know. Even if what we know isn't fulfilling the true purpose of the church or, or giving us what we truly need instead of what we think we want. Now, in their desire for deliverance and the installment of a king, the crowds in Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, which we are about to read about, they find themselves in much the same predicament. They think they know what they want, and it looks like they just might get it. It's as though, when you read this text, that the intermixed with the cries of Hosanna, our subtle shouts are, Are we there yet? Have we finally made it? Only what they wanted, though not wrong in itself, was something quite different than what God was up to. They were confused, though they didn't realize it. They lacked complete understanding. They missed the real need that far exceeded their simple ideas of getting a king who could get them out from underneath Roman oppression. And even if, hear this, even if they got what they wanted, the real problem would still remain. The penalty, the power, and the presence of sin and its consequences. The result was that only a few days, a few short days later, these very same people found themselves dissatisfied, frustrated, and even angry. Angry enough to call for the crucifixion of the very same man that on this day they were heralding as their king. And in the midst of it all, we'll find that Jesus addresses the real issues that were going on on that day. The only problem with his response was that it wasn't what most of them had in mind. It didn't meet with the crowd's approval because it would require a far greater commitment and sacrifice on their part than they were willing to give. 
And it addressed a far broader scope of people than they were personally concerned with. So let's read in John chapter 12, beginning of verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, and who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip together went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses, loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had it thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you, have, while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus has said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Our Father, we pray this morning as we turn our attention to this particular portion of Scripture that you will illuminate our hearts and our minds to truths that... that span the ages, that, that know no particular culture and no particular time, but rather address all men, regardless of geography or, or time or culture, and that being ultimately here, us here today. And I so take your truths, your word, and, and press it in upon our hearts that we may be made more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's more than that, Lord, we pray that the, the proclamation of your word would result in, in your honor and your glory, regardless of what it may mean for each person, even in this room today. 
We love you. We pray you would do what only you can do in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text is lengthy. We're going to look at it really in three sections this morning. It can be broken down kind of neatly, and some of you probably have headings that break it down in your Bible, but pretty much in three sections. And we're going to look at the entirety of it. First section is verses 12 through 19. The second section, verses 20 through 26. And the final section, 27 through 36. Now, I want to point out four truths from this text that we can apply to our, our lives even here today. I want to draw one from each of the, the first two sections and then two final truths from the final section. Let me give you those four truths before we look at them. Number one, momentary circumstances and incomplete understanding can lead to meaningless activity and misguided worship. Now, I don't expect you to memorize that. It's kind of a mouthful. Momentary circumstances and incomplete understanding can lead to meaningful activity and misguided worship. Number two, true discipleship requires great sacrifice in this life but gives way to great reward. Number three, Jesus' ultimate sacrifice secured the defeat of the enemy and the salvation of a multitude or of many. Number four, the present light of truth that God grants to you may not always be available. So let's look at each one of these individually. Number one, momentary circumstances and incomplete understanding can lead to meaningless activity and misguided worship. See in verse 12, we begin reading this story. It starts the next day and then it introduces to us to these events and it sounds very positive. There is excitement in the air. The crowds are stirred up and, and, and elated concerning the events that were beginning to take place on what we now call Palm Sunday. There, were se- there are several different groups in the midst of our text that we were introduced to. So let me just kind of break that down for you for just a moment so you can kind of see it within the scope that will help us to, to garner some truths from it. Then initially we're introduced in verse 12 to the large crowd that had come to the feast. Now this is the general crowd. This is, uh, this is speaking of all that were present there when this was going on. But then in verse 17 we're going to be introduced to another crowd. It's referred to in the same way. It says the crowd in verse 17. But this is not referring to the previous crowd at least not in its entirety, but rather it explains to us who it's referring to. And in verse 17, we find that the crowd here is defined as those who were present when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. And as a result, it is this particular crowd that is going about continually testifying of what they had seen, bearing witness to the miraculous power of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 18, we're going to find another reference to the crowd once again. And this refers back to a smaller grouping of the large crowd, not the ones who were present at Lazarus' resurrection, but rather the ones that were present that day because the other crowd present at Lazarus' resurrection were testifying. And as this crowd heard of the events, they weren't present, but they were hearing this events. And so now they're very curious. And so they are going out to meet this miracle worker. They were excited about what this man could do. And so they were 
excited when they heard he was coming into Jerusalem because they had heard from the crowd present with Lazarus that he had done the sign. And then later, though it doesn't term it as another crowd, John introduces us to yet another group of people. Uh, in verse 20, we're going to be introduced to a, another subgroup within the large crowd, and that is the Greeks, which we'll talk about in a few moments. So this large crowd consisted of a crowd of, of people who were present at Lazarus' resurrection, who then therefore testified about what had happened. And so there were others who had heard, who were now another crowd present in this large crowd, along with another sub-crowd of Greeks who were non-Jews present. This encompassed the scope of all who were present at this scene of which John writes to us about. Now John tells us that, that this, this stirred-up crowd were taking upon themselves, as we begin reading in this text, to elevate Jesus, this miracle-working man, to quite a high position, that of king of Israel. In, in the mixed shouts of their declaration, uh, they state three things that are worth noting. First of all, the, the text tells us that they were shouting, Hosanna, a word you're probably familiar with. And, and this term is, is a term that's translated from Hebrew into Greek, transliterated from Hebrew to Greek, and then from Greek to English, which simply means that it looks pretty much the same in all three languages. So if you met a Greek person and said Hosanna, they, they would understand that word. It's kind of like Amen or Hallelujah. Now, in its original, in the Hebrew, this word comes from actually two words combined together. It is Hoshia Na, which simply means save us now. And so the crowd was crying out, save us now, Lord, which is a quote or quotation that comes from the Old Testament Scripture, Psalm 118, verse 25. And it is an identification of this man Jesus as what we understand to be the Messiah or the anointed one sent from God who would deliver them. And we find out soon enough that they took this very literally, very earthly. They had hoped that Jesus would be the one installed as king, taking Israel back to its former days of its glory and removing them out from underneath Roman oppression. The second thing that they are declaring here is, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, this is a quotation of the same Psalm 118. It's the very next verse, verse 26. And it's a clear indication, as the Hebrews would, would have understood it, that Jesus was, in fact, this Messiah figure. Only their understanding of this Messiah figure was woefully incomplete. Their view and their concept of what Messiah was or who he would be and what he would do was somewhat void or less than what God had intended it. And then they concluded their, their shouts and praises with even king of Israel. Now this is, is an addition to the former quote. This is not located in the text. Now it is an Old Testament ideology that's developed throughout the Old Testament. The greater son of David who would be king over Israel. But not king in a the sense they understood. What they were crying forth was king of Israel. Literally sitting on the throne ruling them. And this is this, this statement added to this possibly reveals to us their limited view of, of this Messiah-like figure and what his real mission was to be about. Now, at this point, John adds Jesus' response to the midst 
in the midst of all this praise. The text goes on to say in verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. Now, I don't want to make details more than they should be, but depending on your translation, what mine reads is, And Jesus found a donkey. But that little word, that little insignificant word, and, is translated from the Greek word, de, which can be translated in several ways. Now, then, and, but, just depending on the context. And, and here, I really think the proper translation would not be the connective and, but rather the adversative, but. And here's the reason. Because what Jesus does in response to what the crowd is doing does not add fuel to the fire, but rather confusion. And, and so it's, it's more like this. It's, they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, who's going to sit upon the throne and remove us from Roman oppression. But Jesus looks and finds a donkey and sits upon it, fulfilling scripture. And then there's quoted Zechariah 9, 9. Now, in the crowd's eyes, what you would expect to see, what they would likely expect to see would be you know, a soldier leading his, his, his troops into a city on foot, or maybe even more valiantly upon a stallion, but upon a donkey? No. Not what they would have expected. So there really is a, a, a stress here. They were shouting the praises, but Jesus, in response to their praise, does this, this unusual thing. He finds a donkey and he sits upon a donkey. A mark of not victory and valiant conquest, but rather great humility. And John purposely inserts here that Jesus' actions were a fulfillment of Scripture. Scripture that Jesus was well aware of, and therefore we can say that Jesus intentionally seeks to fulfill the Old Testament in this case. And by doing so, he was confirming who he truly was publicly for the very first time. Now you would assume that the people, the crowds that were praising and, and shouting Hosanna would would be as aware of Zechariah 9, verse 9, as they were of Psalm 118. But John goes on to insert for us in verse 16 that his disciples did not understand these things at first. Now, follow the line of thinking here. It, it's unlikely that the massive crowd, the crowds there, understood everything that was going on, but yet the ones who were nearest to Jesus did not. The implication is that all those present that day were slightly misguided and lacking in their understanding. But nevertheless, they praised Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the, the Savior of the whole world. Only they didn't praise Him for who He truly was, nor for His divine mission, but for who they wanted Him to be and what they thought was to be His mission. Now, at this point, let's insert a little application. Let's bridge 2,000 years of culture and time and see what that might possibly mean for us today. You see, too often the gathering of the church, something like this, looks more like the worship that took place there on that Palm Sunday. A crowd of people who are singing praises in unison as we have done, exalting Jesus to a high position, as I hope we do, but instead of praising and worship, worshiping the Messiah sent from God to take away the sins of the world, we too are often guilty of getting worked up about Jesus for our own benefit, for our own desires, 
essentially for our own glory. No, we don't need deliverance from Roman oppression. I get that. And at least for the, this moment in time, nor do we need uh, deliverance from any foreign aggression. But we often are seeking out Christ for the very same reasons. To get something from him that we think we want or possibly think that we need. We want a better life. We want a better job. We want less stress or, or less sickness. Maybe it's, it's healing from a disease that we're after. Or maybe we want God to fix our loved one. Or maybe we, we want a bigger church. We want better ministries and activities for our youth and our children. And none of these things are bad things to desire. But too often, these are the things that take precedent in the worship of the church. And as a result, we miss the real purpose of why we're even here this morning. We lose sight of proper praise. Our worship isn't about us. It's not about me. It isn't designed to make you feel better, to make you feel less guilty, or to make you feel more guilty, or anything else that has you at the very center of it. It's about what Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is worthy of. He alone is worthy of our praise. We sing about that. Even if He never gives us anything, even if we, we don't see healing come, even when we find ourselves struggling more and more in the midst of financial difficulty, even if, even if we never see another person come to Christ in this church, God forbid, even if our ministries never increase in number, He's still worthy. And we dare not miss the opportunity to gladly and passionately give Him the praise that He alone is due. We spend much of our time trying to, to make the church look and feel like what we imagine it should that we spend little time allowing our sovereign God to do with His church as He sees fit. Now yes, there are things that we as individuals are supposed to do. It doesn't just happen. There are things that we are supposed to do, but, but we have to learn how to first be the church that Christ died for before we can function and do as Christ has called us to do. You see, often it's more about us doing things the way we've always done them, right? Or if it's not that, it's about doing things in a way that nobody else has ever done it. Or it's about copying the, the latest fad because it's working for someone else. It's more about that than it is about worshiping our great God and King. Period. Because He's worthy of our worship. Because because He is. Not because of what He does for us, but because of who He is. And in our attempt to be relevant or cutting edge, the church has become so busy with reacting to the latest trends and the circumstances and the whims of the masses that we're so confused about what it is that we're really supposed to be worshiping. And so we, we make our effort at it and we attach the name of Christ to it. And until the church realizes that circumstances do not dictate who we are, and, and that not everyone in the church, hear me, not everybody here today is, is a capable, mature, spiritual leader. 
and, and instead, instead of being like that, allowing circumstances to dictate and trying to all lead, we need to determine the biblical foundations to, to what we are to do and commit to doing that, period. And recognize that, that God has appointed in the midst of the church, as Scripture teaches us in Ephesians, some for the equipping of the saints. And, and that in, implies that God places people in the church to lead because he wants other people to follow. And until then, we will find ourselves deep in meaningless activity and full of misguided worship. We might even look and sound good while we do it. But much like the crowd on that Palm Sunday, we will soon find ourselves frustrated, dissatisfied, and even sometimes angry. Momentary circumstances and incomplete understanding can lead to meaningless activity and misguided worship. Number two. True discipleship requires great sacrifice in this life, but gives way to great reward. Now, the previous section, verses 12 through 19, close with yet another group of people we didn't mention that are frustrated and confused about the current events. It introduces the Pharisees who were at their wits' ends because they said, look, we're gaining nothing. The whole world is going after him. John then turns our attention to yet another portion of the crowd that is the Greeks that were present there that day. Understanding the Greeks, these were non-Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, or in other terms, what the Bible often calls Gentiles. Or what we need to understand are people from among the nations. Outside of the nation of Israel. They were interested as well in this miracle worker. And so they wanted to meet Jesus. And they took the direct approach. It's not what you know, right? It's who you know. They go see Andrew, or Philip, and Philip goes and talks to Andrew, and the two of them together go and present this request to Jesus. And now, when Jesus hears this request, the text simply tells us that he answers them with this statement. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, that seems kind of a little bit out of place. There's some Greeks who want to meet you. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Understand, remember, we've been leading up to this point. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. The hour is at hand. The hour has now come. It is here. It, as a result of Greeks coming and wanting to meet Jesus. And what this reveals to us is that the gospel was now, the good news, the gospel was now ready to, to not merely be the gospel of the Jews, but the gospel for the nations for all peoples. And Jesus set his sights on fulfilling this mission to die for the sins of the entire world. He reveals this truth with a common analogy of a grain of wheat. He says a grain of wheat, if it dies, or if it doesn't fall into the ground, it remains alone. But if it goes to the ground and dies, it produces much fruit. And it is very clearly a reference to what was getting ready to happen. If Christ were to remain alive as the crowd intended to be king of Israel, to remove them from Roman oppression, then he would remain the only righteous one alone. But if he were to die, there would be a harvest of righteous ones to follow. So while the crowd may have had grand goals for Jesus, and, and even ones that were not bad, that maybe been good, they did not understand that there was a much greater mission at hand. Then without warning, Jesus turns his attention to his professing disciples, that is, those who 
were willing to, or saying they would cast their lots with him. And his point is straightforward and fairly easy to interpret. First, if you value your life in this world more than him, your life will be vain and lost. But if you sacrifice your life now in this world for his sake, there would be eternity to gain. Enough said. But he goes on and he says, as well, he communicates to us that those who profess to serve Christ, you know, the ones who say, yeah, I, I follow Jesus. I, I'm, a, I'm a servant of Christ. I'm a Christian. Must follow him. Now, this isn't a suggestion in the text. It's what we call imperative. It's a command. Anyone who, who would serve him, he says, he must follow me. This is not optional. It's not you know, the, the multiple choice of what you want to do to call yourself Christian. This is required. This is essential to those who say they're servants of Christ. Those who profess Christ must follow him. The question is, follow him where? The context is pretty obvious, isn't it? Where is he going? Where is he headed? To the cross. Symbol of death. So those who want to serve Jesus, where must you follow him? To the cross. Those who are truly his servants will be cross-bearers with Christ. This is the identity of true discipleship. There are those Christians who are more committed, so they're, they're sacrificial and they're giving of their time and of their life for the sake of the gospel. Then there are those Christians who are just, you know, average folks. There isn't that choice. Maybe from our perspective, in our culture, we try to define it that way, but the Bible doesn't know that. There are those who are committed to the way of Christ, the way of the cross, and there are those who can say a lot of good things with their lips, but there's nothing of reality to what they say. Then also he goes on to say those who truly serve Christ, those who are cross-bearers with him, who are identified by the cross of Christ, though the cost will be great, the reward will be far greater. True discipleship isn't for the faint-hearted. It requires much and gives little in return here and now. It may gain you ostracism. It might gain you a little mockery. It might make you look foolish. It might ruin your personal plans. And it does require constant diligence. But in the end, and often along the way, it will afford you joy, unspeakable and full of glory. Something this world, with all its appeal and all its temporary satisfaction, can never give to you. True discipleship requires great sacrifice in this life, but gives way to great reward. Number three, Jesus' ultimate sacrifice secured the defeat of the enemy and the salvation of a multitude. Jesus goes on to reveal the struggle in this last section that's going on within his own humanity. He says, now my soul is agonizing or my soul is troubled. But he's, he says this, it's recorded for us to reveal something much greater. You see, his soul was agonizing over the anticipation of the most horrific experience anyone could ever go through. Now, as horrible as it would be, that is not the physical torture he is about to endure. That's not what he was agonizing over. And maybe, to some extent, but ultimately that's not it. it. It wasn't being nailed to a cross that he was ultimately agonizing over. What he was agonizing over is what we sung about in this, this last song, saying, all I have is Christ. Talking about the wrath of God being satisfied in the person of Christ upon the cross. He bore the full brunt 
of the wrath of God on behalf of sinners who deserve to bear that wrath themselves. This was his purpose. This was the very purpose for which he came. This was the hour that was, he was all about. This was the glory of God. This was the glory of the Son to absorb on behalf of sinners from every nation the wrath of God that we so deserve. In the sacrifice of Christ, this world experienced defeat. Yes, it still continues at this moment. Jesus goes on and he says that now judgment, this world has come into judgment and now the ruler of this world is cast out. This world continues as we know it today, but it will not remain as much as it may seem it will. Christ sealed the fate of the world in the, when he dealt the final blow to sin, defeating it once for all upon the cross of Calvary. As a result, sin will have no victory. Paul declares it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. While sin has affected all human beings, each and every one of us, born from the moment that sin entered the world through the first sin, and even affected not only us, but creation itself, all of creation, along with all the redeemed, will be set free from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin because Christ has set it in stone upon the cross. It is finished. In addition to this, along with sin's eradication from this world, Christ, as I just read, dealt the final blow to Satan himself, the enemy of of all that is righteous and the ruler of this present world. We can't see him. We, we experience the effects of, of his desires to undo all that, that God loves. He is the ruler of this world to an extent of this age. But Satan is a defeated foe because of Christ's sacrifice. He no longer has any grip on those who are in Christ. And then Christ's cross-bearing act is the very thing to open the door of salvation to the nations. See, this is the very result of Satan's defeat. Satan was no longer able to blind the eyes of the nations as he had throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Now that was suddenly changed and the gospel went forth to the nations, revealing that Satan was no longer in control. Not that he ever was, but he was a defeated foe. The door of salvation was open to the nations, not just to a particular people. And Jesus said that he would draw all people to himself if he to be lifted up, which is not a reference to exalting Christ, but a reference to him dying, to be lifted up upon a cross. Now, we understand in the context, in this context, that what is stated here limits this from meaning every single person. Jesus was not saying that if I'm lifted up on a cross, I would draw every single person to myself, because if that were the case, then we'd be affirmers of universalism, meaning that all people were saved. The scripture clearly, clearly teaches that that is not the case. And so as, as Christ makes his statement that if I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself, the clear contextual meaning based on what we've already read is that if he's lifted up, he will draw all kinds of people to himself, not just those from within this nation, but it would be expanded to the entirety of the world. And it's revealed to us because this conversation is launched from the very presence of those from outside of Israel, the Gentiles from among the nations. 
this was the event that revealed most clearly that God was the God of the whole world, not just a particular nation. He would create a new nation of believers from among the nations. Jesus' ultimate sacrifice secured the defeat of the enemy and the salvation of a multitude. Finally, the present light of truth that God grants to you may not be always, always be available. Jesus concludes this section by addressing the issues of light and darkness and responding to the light that we have, that we might become sons of light. God in his grace reveals truth to sinners like you and like me. He has revealed objective truth through the inspiration of the written word that we find in the pages of the Bible. This is objective truth that, that is the same for all people everywhere, all times. It doesn't change. And God has graciously inspired the writing of the scripture and revealed his objective truth for our good. But not only that, he has revealed subjective truth to individuals through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God illuminates hearts and minds to receive his objective truth, the word, and he takes the truth of his word and he presses it in upon hearts of both lost people who've never repented and, and saved people who are in the process of becoming more and more like Christ. And he does so primarily through what's going on right now, what the Bible calls the foolishness of preaching. And it's through these means that sinners are convicted of sin and made alive unto repentance and faith. And, and it's through these means that believers are made holy through the process of sanctification. That covers everyone in this room. But with all this, there is still the call for each one of us to respond to God's gracious act of revelation to us. Christ's words here at the end of this text warn us that there is an end to the light that God graciously gives. Now, it doesn't give us a time limit, doesn't tell us how many times, but it does warn us that there is a time when there is no more light. We do not know how long that will be, but we are warned that it could be at any moment, right? I mean, how do we know that the very light that we're being given right now, in this moment that God's pressing in on us, will be there tomorrow? We don't know that. So our response should be to not ignore the light that God may be granting you right now, this very day. You see, if you're here and you're lost, you've not repented of your sins and believed the gospel, and God is pressing in upon your heart this morning concerning your lost condition, your need for a Savior, don't take that for granted and assume that I'll do it later, I'll, I'll deal with that later. Because the Bible says today is the day of salvation, and it's the very idea, it's this very idea that the writer of Hebrews addresses when he writes this, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now that's one of those debated passages. I didn't raise it to debate it. But it does clearly say this, that ignoring the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit can be the very reason we don't get that light again. And so we are not to take the light of the Spirit of God upon our hearts as lost people moving us to repent and believe lightly, assuming, eh, we'll live life for me now. When it matters, we'll live it for Christ. Repent now. 
believe the gospel. If you're a believer, the same stands true for you today. If the Holy Spirit is pressing truth in upon your heart, dealing with you in a specific way, you, you're not to take that for granted either. It, it's, not, it's not guaranteed that you can deal with that later. Now is the time to respond to the truth of God's word, however it is that God is calling you to respond. That's, I can't say how that is. I have no insight into your heart and your life particularly. All I can do is present the truth and allow God to then press that truth upon your heart in the way in which you should respond. But don't put it off. You may find yourselves numb to that very truth if you do. And realize that being numb to truth typically means you don't even realize that you're numb to that truth. So when you put that thing off today and for later, suddenly you don't even realize that you're even putting it off anymore and it just doesn't matter. So momentary circumstances and incomplete understanding can lead to meaningless activity and misguided worship. True discipleship requires great sacrifice in this life but gives way to great reward. Jesus' ultimate sacrifice secured the defeat of the enemy and the salvation of many. And the present light of truth that God grants to you may not always be available. So how is it that we can respond? Well, I don't know particularly in your situation. But I can offer some particular ways from what we've discussed this morning. Number one, it, it could be that today you decide that you're not going to allow your momentary circumstances and your life experience or personal preferences to dictate the part that you're going to play in the life of the church. Otherwise, you're not going to make it all about you. And if you have, you're just going to say, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's not about me. It's about something much bigger than me. It's about the glory of God. And instead, determine to allow biblical truth, no matter how difficult to be your guide when it comes to any and all aspects of your life, especially life within the church, the very people that Christ died to establish. Or maybe you just need to accept the truth that God has gifted believers differently for the good of the church. And this includes that there are different, differing levels of spiritual maturity within this body of believers. We cannot all lead. And God has gifted the church with leaders. And that implies that maybe you need to make that decision to go, you know what? I'm going to follow the ones that God has called for us to follow. Or Maybe you need to seek God's grace to pursue faithful discipleship, no matter what that may require of you. Maybe you're not doing anything specifically for discipleship. And yes, it will cost you something, whether it's your time or, or something, it will cost. And yes, it will be worth it. For example, for you men, you probably, if you've read your bulletin, you've seen that I'm starting in September, two different groups, early morning groups for discipleship, the express purpose for discipleship. It may be that you need to set aside that early morning time. It might mean that you have to get up a little bit earlier than you would like to. Mondays, are going to, I'm going to meet with people at, at um, I'm going to get this wrong, 6 o'clock. Is that right? No, 6.30 on Tuesdays at 6 o'clock. You, maybe you need to take part in that as a part of discipleship in your sanctification for the glory of God. Or maybe you're a young adult here and you're not doing anything by the way of discipleship well, maybe you need to commit to discipleship by joining the group that Jared leads on Tuesday evenings for the purpose of discipling believers to grow in holiness and 
and to become more like Christ or, or any other number of things that we may offer you may hear about it may be that you have to set aside schedules that are, that are already current and sacrifice something for the purpose of becoming holy sanctified more like Christ or maybe you need to determine to join Christ in his mission to make salvation available to all kinds of people and to all nations and that can be played out in any number of ways or maybe you commit to immediate obedience to the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart maybe that's your problem you, you put things off and you need to say no today I'm changing that I'm, gonna, I'm going to obey Christ today and I'm going to stop putting things off those are a few ways but the key is that you respond how God calls you to respond we're going to sing in just a moment after I pray and we invite you to respond to the word that you've heard whether that's to come because we will be here available for you if you need someone to pray with you or to, to make us aware of a, a, a burden you're bearing that you need to share the load with another believer we're here for that whether you just need to come and pray whether you need to come and say you know I need to know the gospel that I could so that I could be saved I need the confidence and assurance of salvation in my life whatever the need for you is this morning we'll be here for you but our, our invitation our call of to response doesn't end when the song ends it's always available we have phone numbers we have addresses you're always welcome to seek us out for the purpose of your spiritual edification and the glory of God in your life but you must respond Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We ask that this morning that you'd have your way in our hearts, no matter how hard that may be for us, no matter how much that may hurt for us. In fact, Lord, we recognize that if we are to give ourselves to you fully, it will likely hurt us in some way. So, Father, I pray that amongst those who are here this morning, that if there are any that are lost and need to acknowledge you as Lord and Savior and embrace the gospel, then and make that known. I pray, Lord, that they would do that and they would not wait any longer for that. If there are those who are here who are, who are true believers, but for whatever reason, they're making excuse after excuse after excuse of why uh, the way they live their life is okay and justified when they're not following you. I pray that they would end that today and you'd work in our hearts in a powerful way to grant grace to them that they might be able to see change come about in their own heart. And Father, our ultimate goal here this morning is, is, is not ultimately us. Though we understand that your glory is played out in the lives of your people being conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so we do desire to see change in our lives and in our church. But whatever it looks like, Lord, we desire above all that you be glorified for all that you are, for all that you have presented yourselves to us to be, Lord of all, Savior of the world, deserving of all glory, honor, and praise. And Lord, we pray that this morning you will indeed be honored and lifted up. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.